Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, and I'm bringing you the November AJT Highlights podcast. Welcome, everybody. Today, we actually we have, of course, Roz Manon, who is here with us from University of Nebraska. Uh, she's joined by Shahid Marani, who's a liver and kidney transplant surgeon at Nebraska to discuss one article. So he's our special guest. And we have another special guest, um, Katie Ross Driscoll, who is our uh, AJT fellow intern this month. And uh, she'll be discussing two articles. I'm going to go through quickly the articles that we'll be discussing this month. Um, there are five of them. Katie will start off with joint modeling of liver transplant candidates outperforms the model for end-stage liver disease, the effect of disease development over time on patient outcome by Gaud Smith et al. And then the next article is entitled Hardest to Place Kidney Transplant Outcomes in the United States by Kaler et al. And then Shahid will discuss the learning curve of deceased donor liver transplant during fellowship training by Khan et al. Then I will discuss developing simultaneous liver kidney transplant medical eligibility criteria while providing a safety net, a two-year review of the OPTN's allocation policy by Wilk et al. And then Roz will finish up with a basic science viewpoint, C1Q as a potential tolerogenic therapeutic in transplantation by Baldwin et al. So Katie, why don't you start off with the joint modeling paper and, and thank you for joining us. Great. Thanks so much, Josh. And I'd like to start off by saying thank you for the opportunity to talk with you all today. Uh, it's an honor and I'm really grateful for the editorial fellowship program for providing such a fantastic training opportunity for us more junior folks in transplantation. Um, I'm going to start off by talking about the Goudsmith et al. article on joint modeling and liver transplant candidates. And the purpose of this study was to develop and validate predictive models of weightless mortality using joint models of meld sodium, which I'll talk about more here in a minute. But these are models that incorporate both the value of meld and the longitudinal trajectory of meld and compare the performance of those models to meld sodium alone. So the authors used data from both Eurotransplant and UNOS, and the Eurotransplant data was from 2007 to 2018. The U.S. data was from 2016 to 2019 after the implementation of meld sodium for allocation. And they focused on adult liver-only patients and excluded patients who had acute liver failure, priority status, or those who had exception points. And although they don't tell us what proportion of patients this is, this is going to disproportionately impact patients with HCC. So it's something to keep in mind that the results are not going to necessarily generalize to the entire population of the waitlist. I'd just like to take a minute here to geek out about the modeling that they do in this paper, which is very cool. Uh, it essentially combines longitudinal data analysis and survival analysis. So often we have repeated data collection of predictors of survival like MELD for our patients. And it's intuitive that there's information to be gained, not just in the value of the predictor, but also in their trajectory. So there could be two patients with the same MELD value measured at the same time, but if one of those patients has been holding steady for weeks uh, and one of those patients has a rapidly increasing MELD, you would intuitively think that those two patterns indicate different information about the patient's survival probability. And figure one does a really nice job of illustrating this. However, up until recently, our ability to model this has been hampered by methodological limitations. And there have been some ways that authors have tried to do this. For example, looking at uh, Delta MELD or the MELD spike, but neither of those methods make good use of all the information that we have available on patients, and some of them are kind of arbitrary. 
So joint modeling is a solution to this. It's a, a recent statistical innovation, and it's called joint modeling because it combines two different types of models. Uh, the first is a mixed effects model of MELD over time, in which current MELD is modeled as a function of MELD history, uh, which can be nonlinear, with a random intercept and slope to allow for individual variation across patients. And the second model is a Cox model of patient survival. So by combining these two models, the joint model predicts survival using both the value of MELD and its rate of change at every time point. And so the authors did find that their joint model predicted 90-day survival better than MELD sodium alone. And in particular, the joint models had a higher, significantly higher area under the curve for the first year on the waiting list, after which the difference between the two models became non-significant. Although the joint models don't do as well for some patient groups, particularly patients with hepatitis C. And the authors created this very cool online platform where you can directly upload MELD score data for patients and obtain individualized survival prediction estimates using the joint models from this manuscript. And in addition to this, they compared who would have been prioritized by their joint model versus by MELD alone by ranking individuals based on predicted survival and then assigning the number of available donor livers in the first 90 days to the highest ranking patients is kind of a rough estimate of who would have been prioritized um, or offered liver transplantation first. And they found that the patients prioritized by the joint model tended to be younger and more female. And while they had a lower average MELD score than those prioritized by MELD sodium alone, they were three times more likely to die in the 90-day interval. So the authors conclude that uh, MELD joint models should be considered for use in liver allocation. And then there's an accompanying editorial about the evolution of MELD on the 20th anniversary of its use in liver allocation. Uh, and this editorial brings up some really important points about the joint modeling that, you know, while it's very, very interesting, there's still a lot of work that can be done before it could be used in allocation. And one of these points that I, I thought was particularly salient was that the joint models are not as predictive in black liver transplant candidates. Um, when I read this, I was wondering if it might be related to underlying disease etiology, uh, because they also note that the joint models don't work as well for hep C patients, uh, and Black patients are more likely to be listed as hep C with their underlying etiology. Uh, but this is something that would be really important to further explore to make sure that we aren't inducing new waitlist disparities through inappropriate prioritization. Another really good point is that these models are complex, and not having a single MELD as a reference point uh, it might be really challenging for transplant clinicians and patients to communicate about the timing of liver transplantation. And I think that there's probably an opportunity for some qualitative work here uh, with identifying priorities and communication preferences for both patients and providers if these joint models were to be incorporated going forward. Uh, we would need to figure out how to incorporate exception points into an allocation system that use joint modeling. Patients with exception points were excluded from this analysis, and the authors suggest some potential applications of joint modeling for HCC patients, like modeling tumor characteristics, but it's very speculative. There's still a lot of work to be done there. And finally, uh, there's the really most important point that allocation changes really need to be simulated first, which I absolutely agree with. You know, there are challenges to simulation, but I think it's necessary to understand the potential benefits and drawbacks of any newly proposed system, including one that uses joint modeling. Yeah, this is a, a really um, exciting paper. I mean, I mean, taking the change in meld of, you know, and making it in actually, actually a very robust model um, compared to just the change over time. Um, also, the fact that they used the European and US databases and had kind of a cross validation, I thought was pretty powerful. I was curious what, I mean, we, when you look at the literature in the last couple of years, MELD is being is like a it's like a 
dartboard and there's all these things being fired at it. I mean, uh, we, I think almost every month or two, we look at a new iteration of meld and incorporating gender or, you know, things like albumin levels or, there was this meld 3.0 that was published in gastroenterology that and you wonder um what it's going to take to change the current system because it clearly there are better predictive models but probably you're right it's probably going to have to go through more simulation with more recent data particularly you know in the more recent um allocation system to to kind of prove that it works more recent rather than historical i don't know if you had thoughts about that katie or others um i would just say that yeah i think what what should be incorporated into meld is one conversation but then also how do we model meld is another thought and that's something i think that the joint modeling gets at kind of no matter what iteration of meld we're using i think there's a it's another discussion of should we be using kind of um the last meld taken forward or should we be incorporating all the history that we have about patient disease trajectory that's going to be part of the discussion Katie, I'm just an amateur statistician. Can you explain to me why it is that the joint model um, becomes less discriminant compared to MELD alone after the 12-month time point? Um, it just kind of strikes me as odd because, right, the the onset of, of you know, inclusion in this patient cohort would be different, just a, the clinical decision to list the patient for transplant, I believe, if I'm reading it correctly. I, my understanding is that it's not that the joint model becomes less discriminant than MELD, it's that it becomes not significantly different. So the absolute value of the AUC remains higher, but they're not um, doing significantly better at predicting, which the authors just kind of explain as, you know, maybe after a year waiting, your disease trajectory is not as informative as it is in the first year. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. I think you pretty much know where somebody's going to the trajectory over the, you know, the early period once patients are listed. So, you know, I think as you go out later, those are probably less sick patients and their survival prediction is not as you know, discriminatory as just using meld by itself. Nevertheless, it's a it's a great paper and more to come. So um, why don't we get moving on to um, the kidney transplant hardest to place outcomes in the US. Sure. So the next paper that we'll talk about is on outcomes from hardest to place kidneys uh, by Kaler et al. So improving kidney utilization and reducing organ discard are both priorities for the transplant community as a way to increase the number of organs available for transplant. But there's also a degree of risk aversion by transplant programs in part in response to regulatory scrutiny that penalizes centers with poorer than expected outcomes. But research in this area can be kind of challenging to do because there's not always a good way of looking at what patient outcomes would have been from kidneys that were ultimately discarded. Since they were discarded, we don't have any information on patient outcomes. And a group of kidneys that might be of interest are the hardest to place kidneys uh, who get many offered that get offered many times before they're ultimately accepted. And these kidneys might act as a sort of stand-in for kidneys that are offered but ultimately discarded. Uh, so the two goals of this paper were to look at outcomes from hard-to-place kidneys and to determine whether the current methods of risk adjustment sufficiently capture risk from using these hard-to-place kidneys. The authors used UNOS Matron and SRTR data from 2007 to 2018 and classified kidneys as either locally accepted or shared. And then among shared kidneys, they identified the number of offers made on each kidney before acceptance. 
and these were categorized into tertiles. And the hardest to place group was defined as shared kidneys in the highest tertile of offer numbers. So this ended up being greater than 164 declined offers prior to acceptance. And the comparison group that the authors looked at was locally accepted kidneys. They looked at a variety of outcomes after kidney transplantation, including delayed graft function, death-censored graft failure, and overall mortality. And they did a sensitivity analysis of their results that excluded kidneys that were placed out of sequence for operational allocation reasons, such as payback agreements or multi-organ placements, and really focused just on kidneys that were turned down for uh, the quality code. Compared to locally accepted kidneys, uh, the hardest to place kidneys were were associated with an 83% increased odds of delayed graft function and an 11% hazard of all-cause allograft failure after adjustment for recipient and donor characteristics. And there was not an association between the hardest-to-place kidneys and overall mortality. And the authors point out in their discussion that while there's a relative increased risk of graft failure, the absolute difference between the groups is pretty small. So it's less than about 5%. So there's likely still a long-term benefit of using these hardest-to-place kidneys despite the increased short-term risk of outcomes like DGF. And I was thinking, you know, while I was reading this, that from a patient perspective, the most useful comparison is probably not what is my risk from accepting a hard-to-place organ versus a local organ, but what is my risk from accepting a hard-to-place organ versus remaining on dialysis or staying on the wait list. Um, but the authors aren't just considering the patient perspective here. They're also looking at what these results mean for transplant centers and for center quality metrics. Uh, so they found that about 65 centers use these hardest to place kidneys out of 214 centers included. So the use is concentrated in a minority of centers. And they argue that since there's an association between um, <laughs> this hard-to-place kidney uh, refusal number outcome or exposure and patient outcomes, even after adjusting for factors accounted for in risk-adjusted models, such as uh, KDRI, that perhaps we should be adjusting for refusal number to avoid penalizing centers that utilize these hard-to-place organs. And there's a great accompanying editorial by Peter Stock and Crystal Lentine, who's actually my mentor in the fellowship program. And they agree with the authors that likely the relatively small difference in long-term outcomes indicates that potential recipients higher on the match run with declines coded for donor quality would have benefited from these organs. But they raised this really important point, which is that right now the coding for donor quality lacks granularity to tell if an organ is being declined for not meeting the quality thresholds for the program, or if it's being declined as having inadequate quality for a particular candidate who might have increased comorbidity burden or who's been on dialysis for a long time and therefore might not be able to tolerate receiving a kidney with compromised early function but maybe the organ would have been accepted for another candidate at that program. And so as a result, refusal number, even when you think about just refusal for that donor quality code, really represents a mix of actual donor quality and of participant characteristics on the match run. And so instead of incorporating refusal number into transplant center program scoring, they recommend developing a more flexible and efficient allocation algorithm with better transparency and coding, and then also thinking about ways to uh, revise reimbursement to reduce any financial burdens that centers might face from transplanting organs with early delayed function. Great summary of, uh, of an interesting paper. And so at our institution, nephrologists don't make these decisions, but at some institutions they do. So I think it's great for, I think everybody should read this paper, no matter what you do in your center. I think in particular, there is a really, I was fascinated by the fact that the long-term outcome 
was not as directly different as I thought it would, particularly with the rate of DGF. Um, and I concur probably with the editorial quite a bit that the refusal code is is one big code for anything, including the kidney had a hematoma on it and we just decided not to use it versus a biopsy versus 175, you know, my 164 of my very closest friends turned it down for whatever reason. So I think that ha- is helpful. And I also think the, the cost of, of these patients long-term, longer, short-term care is really understated in the system. Um, and it makes people edgy. And then the risk associated with taking a kidney, I mean, we're a risk-averse group. We're getting better. 65 centers aren't so risk-averse, but those are probably big centers that have a big denominator. So uh, you can cover a mistake if a mistake happens. And I also thought it was interesting in their article, too, in their editorial, where they talk about patient considerations and and. Dr. Lentine's been involved with Missouri State with a bunch of technical biotech people that are, you know, if you want to talk about geeking out, they're trying to create AI so that you can sort of, you know, do these calculations and say to the patient, if you stay on the waiting list, this is what happens. If you get this kidney, this is the outcome. So a nice summary of the paper. I don't know if anybody else has any other comments. No, it just, just with anything, well, I was yeah. going to say just, just with anything, it'd be great to replicate it in another organ transplants and it'd be fascinating because yeah. Yeah. I, I imagine you see kind of similar results, but anyway, well, thank you, um, Katie. Uh, great job. Appreciate it. Um, now we're going to move on and Shahid, we, Roz asked you to come to give us the surgical perspective here, which is really important that we have well-trained uh, liver transplant surgeons and and we're training them well. And I think this paper really gets to the heart of it and what the status is and what we need moving forward for training our, our transplants, our liver transplant surgeons. So could you uh, discuss that paper? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this. This is uh, really fun. So the article that um, I'll be discussing was published uh, first online in June 2021 um, in AJT titled uh, The Learning Curve of Deceased Donor Liver Transplant uh, During Fellowship Training, uh, which comes to us um, from uh, Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, uh, authored by Dr. Khan and um, overseen by Dr. Chapman and Dr. Doyle there. This study basically is trying to look at the learning curve uh, and defining what that means and what it looks like uh, during the process of fellowship training for the surgical uh, transplant fellows. And overall, the study design includes uh, retrospective analysis over a course of 14 years at a single center and ultimately uh, a total of 830 liver transplants performed by 11 dedicated ASTS certified uh, fellows were evaluated. Uh, Figure one provides kind of a consort style uh, uh, flow diagram of the inclusion and exclusion, notably excluded uh, are pediatric liver transplants, multivisceral transplants, or uh, those transplants in which the fellow did not act as the primary uh, surgeon by the criteria defined by the authors. Additionally, any fellows uh, that were um, more in the HPV track were excluded, and really the focus was on the ASTS uh, uh, training model. The authors then went on to evaluate uh, several operative characteristics as well as post-operative complications uh, to define the learning curve. 
not surprisingly, it was found that there was not a statistically significant difference um, between patient survival after liver transplant based on the order of the transplant that was performed by the uh, fellow. And so for uh, definition um, of early transplants versus those that were done later during fellowship, the authors chose to use uh, the cut point of 45 uh, liver transplants as kind of the training model, which also mirrors uh, the ASTS uh, guidelines for uh, training uh, fellows in liver transplantation. With regards to operative data uh, outcomes, the total operative time as well as the warm ischemia time uh, for transplants performed by fellows in the early portion of their training was statistically um, higher than those transplants performed later uh, in the fellowship uh, training program. And interestingly, although this is statistically significant, I, I will uh, warn the reader that the total um, time difference was you know, approximately 20 minutes of operative time during a six minute case overall and with regards to warm ischemia time was really only different by three minutes as pointed out by uh, dr mcgee and dr pomfret in the uh, accompanying um, editorial those times are well um, all well within um, our established um, kind of known timelines uh, to avoid post-operative complications and so i think that this speaks to the fact that you know in figure three there was no overall difference noted in patient survival nor graft survival within the two cohorts interestingly however from a post-operative um, uh, uh, outcomes perspective there was a statistical difference within the rate of biliary leak or biliary stricture and leak uh, uh, grouping together um, the biliary complications, uh, the overall rate of complications uh, was found to be 23% during the first 20, uh, 45 liver transplants performed by any given fellow versus 16% um, in those um, performed thereafter. You know, this is a really interesting paper and it, it, it does uh, break down some of the, you know, the finer um, uh, details of the first 15 versus the next 15 and the latter 15 um, uh, uh, transplants that were performed uh, by the fellow. I had an opportunity last week to speak to Dr. Khan about his paper and kind of asked him what it was about this paper that, if anything, changed how they performed tra uh, training at their center. And I think his, his thoughts were really interesting. He said it probably hasn't changed the way that they actually provide the training or how the um, operation goes, but it does provide good benchmarking for fellows. And I thought that was intriguing because basically what they are now able to provide is a benchmark of the active fellow compared to those that are training in the past. And I think in the setting of transplantation where um, outcome metrics and uh, benchmarking and quality are very important. I think this is an opportunity to train that element of uh, transplantation uh, to the fellows concurrently. So I think overall in the uh, editorial provided uh, by Dr. McGee and Dr. Pomfret, there's uh, one line that I think is really the bottom line, which is in medicine as in life, experience matters. And I think thinking about this um, in the traditional surgical approach to training, which typically follows the apprentice to journeyman to master craftsperson and model. I think what this paper does is nicely quantify that learning curve and uh, I think is a quite nice piece that I read with a lot of interest. Thank hey, you. Thanks. I think it was helpful because, you know, the last time I was in the operating room was to get a biopsy of a kidney intraoperatively 
I also thought it was intriguing that there is going to be an oral exam now for the fellows in the ASTS tract, and I was unaware of that. So that's kind of like another um, layer of sort of saying, what would you do if? But again, I always wondered in the in, in procedural careers how you can assess that. Like maybe this person does the boards really well, but how do you really know? And, and Mark Deerhoy of Blessed Memory at UAB used to say, was, oh, I used to always reach out and ask the program, hey, what do you think of this person? Tell me their technical ability. I think that's important. And as you probably know, the ASTS has a really kind of advanced um, uh, training model in terms of not only operative milestones, but um, uh, operative uh, characteristics where um, surgeons are allowed to provide uh, feedback on the liver back table, the liver transplant procedure, um, intraoperative decision making, and now, as you mentioned, an oral examination. But I think there is something subtle about how, you know, the sutures are placed, how the tissue is approximated, how the dissection is carried forward, that are intangible, I think, at present, but they are so critically important. And so that apprenticeship to journeyman to, you know, master craftsperson type of model, I think, uh, will stand for a very long time, because it, it is an art in addition to a science, I believe. I was also wondering, I mean, when you came out of fellowship, did you immediately do um, a deceased donor liver transplant like kind of on your own independently or you know usually there's a time period as a junior faculty where you're it's you know you're really you're you're going along that learning curve still i think you don't right. see everything in fellowship right you don't see everything in fellowship you know it's it's more challenging uh, as an attending fellow uh, attending surgeon on your first day than it was if as a fellow on your last day um, because of all the other factors that you're uh, thinking about. But I think, you know, as is highlighted by this paper, there is a lot of variability in the transplant volume that is experienced from one center to another. And I think um, in their limitations section, Dr. Khan talks a little bit about that in that, you know, although this is a learning curve that is applicable um, to one particular training program um, on going either retrospective or prospective collection on fellow performance, both in terms of operative time, but also in complication rates, probably needs to be individualized program to program. Great. Thanks, Shahid. That's really terrific. And, and, really and, and thanks. Time. Yeah. Thanks for setting the bar high, because now it sounds like I have to start reaching out to the first authors. <laughs> yeah, I think that was uh, that was unique that you did that, which I love. It's a good, it's a good lesson for us. Thanks for teaching us that. All right. Well, let me um, dive into a, a very important paper, which uh, is one of the highlights also of this month, which is evaluating the SLK, simultaneous liver kidney transplant medical criteria that were established in 2017 and sort of a review of the initial results. This was a paper that came out of UNOS by Amber Wilk and also um, a number of authors, including our recent president of AST, Richard Farmica. And essentially, just as a way of background, I um, don't have to go into all of the details, but I think it's we're, we're all quite aware that the number of simultaneous liver kidneys since the implementation of MELD in 2002 have increased every, every single year. And despite the best efforts to develop guidelines and criteria, um, there were, there were many those who, who proposed 
certain criteria and some centers kind of followed them and some didn't. And it got to the point where the numbers were going up significantly. And the UNOS committee, liver intestine committee, along with other committees, put together a very well thought out SLK eligibility criteria and a safety net in August of 2017. And just to not to go into all the details, but just to refer you to what the eligibility criteria are, which is on figure one, basically, you have to meet CKD criteria um, or sustained acute kidney disease criteria and or metabolic disease, which is only a small subset. And if you don't meet criteria for for SLK and you have ongoing or new kidney dysfunction after a liver transplant alone, we're at month two from the transplant up until month 12, your estimated GFR or other GFR measure is less than 20 or you're on dialysis, you get prioritized on the kidney transplant list, which is called CALT, K-A-L-T, kidney after liver transplant. And so this criteria, these were implemented and this paper goes over the first couple of years, although it's sort of two plus three because they also go over the 2020 data, which understandably was a challenging year for all of us with the epidemic and the pandemic and and uh, not being sure the data are really reliable because of the pandemic in terms of how the criteria held up in that year. Uh, but nevertheless, they do show some data from two to three years. And uh, just to go over some central themes that or, or things that they found um, is that it does look like that the number of simultaneous liver kidney transplants seem to um, not continue to increase, which is which is a good thing. Um, if we look at figure six, um, they have a dotted line that shows if the policy had not changed, there was an expected continued increase. Whereas um, with the policy, you can see a dipping down in 27 to 2018, and then a slight trend up to where it's coming back up in 2020. So it does seem to have averted uh, the increase that was expected um, by applying these criteria. So um, there are less liver kidneys done than would have been uh, performed um, had the criteria had not been in place. However, the number of kidney after liver transplants, while numerically isn't a huge amount, um, quadrupled in this time period. So as you're more restrictive on the front end, the safety net was being utilized more. Overall, there was a net decrease in kidneys used in this population, but still the, the balance is, again, the liver kidney up front versus kidney after liver transplant did favor saving some kidney organs for non-liver recipients, but not a, not a real substantial amount because kidney after liver transplant was utilized um, significantly in this time period. Um, the good news is that the kidney after liver transplant patients um, were able to get transplanted fairly quickly compared to a, uh, without a safety net, which is before the criteria. So the safety net prioritization is working and their outcomes were very good too, which I was happy to see because I was uh, worried that putting a kidney in after a liver transplant uh, two months later, the patients may not do well or the kidneys may not do well and, and someone who has a who is kind of sick after a liver transplant. So again, this is um, this is really preliminary data. It's the first couple of years of the policy. Of note, there were a number of other 
allocation policy changes during this time period, which may affect the results. Uh, Samit Rani and I wrote an editorial on it for this issue in, in AJT. And the main things that we point out is that the criteria seem preliminarily meeting its goals to have actual criteria and to blunt the rise of SLKs without affecting um, post-transplant survival and to some degree increasing organ availability for kidney transplant alone. I think the the things that we really need is first, we need more time because this is just a couple of years of data and it does look like 20, there is a trend going back up in 2019 and 2020. The kidney after liver transplant also needs to be monitored if that continues to be utilized in a significant way. One thing that is not really well reflected is, and I didn't mention, is that most of the liver kidney patients um, met CKD criteria. And there were very few that had prolonged AKI that met criteria and got a liver kidney. I think that's because the, the criteria are quite uh, stringent. You have to have six, six weeks of very low GFR. The patients either get transplanted um, with a liver alone or don't survive that long. So the question is, though, what is the, what are those patients' kidney function after a liver transplant alone who have prolonged AKI? This report doesn't really report on that because they're just reporting the um, SLK outcomes and um, this is a population that I know from personal experience um, struggles, and they may not meet criteria for a kidney after liver transplant, but may have you know poor GFR long term, and then ultimately develop CKD and may need a kidney later or may suffer consequences from it. So that population really needs to be looked at and reported, um, sort of the the other other side of the coin. Nevertheless, this is um, an important thing to report policy implementation results and how it's gone. It does seem to be fairly positive. Um, again, the whole picture probably needs a few more years to, to flesh out and, and see, you know, what, how is this affecting the entire population, not just the, the liver kidney candidates. But definitely an important paper. I encourage you all to, uh, to take a look at it. Well, thanks, Josh, for um, that update because, you know, there were many people. First of all, it was hard to come up with this schema and it, it was a Herculean effort to educate many of us. And then once we were educated to get it, you know, implemented locally so that people understood how this was supposed to work and what the safety, you know, and being comfortable with the safety net. So uh, I think that's a great point about these AKI patients in terms of their outcome. And I'm surprised they didn't really do that in this. They certainly had an opportunity, but maybe they wanted to wait longer to see how they did or how they didn't do. But certainly I've taken care of many of those folks that show up to clinic and you're right. I think it is a struggle. I mean, they have their CNI therapy and they're dealing with that on top of everything else. So definitely a challenge, but great. Well, that, I guess I have to go last and yes. um, drum roll. This is a basic science paper, but it's really a viewpoint and it's really a very stunning sort of interesting and it's very different than any of the other things we've talked about. It, it talks about C1Q, a component of C1 complement. Uh, and it's written by Wink Baldwin and colleagues at the Lerner Research Institute at Cleveland Clinic. And, and the point of this paper is think about this complement component as something other than inflammatory. 
And certainly, I think most of us, when we hear complement, we think of inflammation and hemolysis and that there are a number of studies right now undergoing research. Some of them have been completed. Some are being reviewed in terms of targeting complement for both delayed graft function and antibody-mediated rejection because complement is an important part of the innate immune system. And so this viewpoint in figure one shows you both the structure, you know, a schematic structure of C1Q, but also its different functions. And we typically think of antibody that is bound by C1Q as being worse prognosis, probably because it's higher, tighter. Um, and C1Q binding to, uh, to immunoglobulin release is based on subclass. And C1Q, unlike some of the other complement components, is not produced by the liver, but by myeloid cells like mononuclear cells and macrophages. So it can be secreted into the tissue independently. It can also be in the circulation, which is not something I think we mostly think about. But C1Q can also, it combines with two C1Rs and C1Ss to create the C1 complex. And that complex is inhibited by C1 inhibitor. And that actually digests C1 and, and can release free C1Q. And C1Q is called a pattern recognition receptor as well. It can bind apoptotic cells and mediate their clearance by macrophages. But what's interesting is that if you, and so that sort of gives you a sense that there's something funny about C1Q, that it's not all pro-inflammatory. And indeed, if you have, there are no mutations in man where C1Q is deficient and you can have autoimmune responses and certainly there's a proliferative, there's a, knockout mouse model where those animals develop a proliferative plumerular injury. And so C1Q can also inhibit monocyte maturation. But this whole notion of it binding apoptotic bodies and, and then presenting that to macrophages, interestingly, when the macrophages recognize these circulating vesicles or these localized produced vesicles, those macrophages actually become anti-inflammatory. They make some IL-10, TGF-beta, um, and they upregulate some uh, of receptors like PDL1 and PDL2. So there is hints that C1Q may be an anti-inflammatory. So this paper wants to highlight that we need to potentially think about it. Um, there's some transplant scenarios where it may be helpful. There is a C1 inhibitor being studied right now. That's BIV009. This is not a plug for sanity. This is just the truth. And that study is underway in AMR. Um, and so the question is whether the impact of that will really be the C1Q being released, perhaps, or and, and being free, or is it the binding of the of um, you know to the uh, C1Q comp the C1 complex? So three points just to make here, just so we can finish up. You know the C the impacts of C1 inhibitor um, may be more than just blocking complement function. And this release of C1Q into tissues may be an immune modulatory factor. That's not something I've ever really thought about, but obviously these authors have, and they provide some evidence. And indeed, um, there have been studies that have shown that these apoptotic bodies, these extracellular vesicles, contain inflammatory fragments, including major histocompatibility fragments and co-stimulatory molecules, and they can actually stimulate T cells in vitro. So maybe this is the yang of the yin, that these apoptotic bodies can also get coated by C1Q and downregulate that. It's not really clear if C1Q's function in, in a local setting, in a microenvironment, is the same as systemic. And the immunogenicity or tolerogenicity of these vesicles that are coated is not clear, and that function needs to be defined. 
And um, I don't think anybody's really been looking at circulating levels. I'm sure somebody has a C1Q. I just don't know that literature, but maybe there is something to that and maybe it's a potential biomarker. So this group is poised. They have a program project grant um, in antibody meter rejection. And maybe this is um, maybe the part of one of their projects where they're really looking at something quite novel. Yeah, it, it really kind of opened my eyes to um, kind of the, I mean, I always, when I think of compliment and the C1s and, or the, the Cs, they're, they're all bad news, um, you know, binding antibodies and causing, you know, ADCC and, and uh, that the fact that it could be potentially tolerogenic and the pathways that they go through, I thought it was really elegant the way they described it. There's always something new to learn on this podcast, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. So if you, this is like an action-packed. This day. was a good one. I mean, yeah. we have good ones, but this was. We had uh, great, and we had great, great uh, help. Yes. Yes. Katie Driscoll. Well, thank yeah. Thank you, Katie. And uh, Shahid had a run. He had to go do a donor with a fellow. So um, he, is no, know, he is the master, not the apprentice anymore. Right. We know that he's done more than 45. Hopefully, <laughs> quite a bit. It's Nebraska, you know. It's yeah. liver, it's liver down. Well, thank you all, and uh, it's been a great um, podcast, and we look forward to December. Take care, everybody. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's A M J transplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 